Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. All right, we are digging in to putting on God's armor, to wearing his armor so that we can find success, victory, in this spiritual battle that we're fighting so that we can overcome sin in our lives and the enemy who stands against us, Satan. And each piece of the armor that we're going to walk through and we're putting on represents a part of God's strength that he has given to you and to me when we become Christians. And the goal of this series is that we would learn each piece of the armor, what it is, and how we can use it. This week, we're going to talk about the breastplate of righteousness. This is an incredibly crucial piece of God's armor. It's vital for our survival. It protected the most crucial areas of a body. And this area of the body that the breastplate protected determined if you were struck in this area, if you would live or you would die. It uh, it was a piece of typically bronze for those who were wealthy enough. They'd have a piece of bronze that would be casted into a mold that would fit from about your neck until around your waist. And it protected two main areas. It protected the soldier's heart and it protected the soldier's stomach. And these two areas, the breastplate was designed to protect so that anyone anyone could take a blow in this area from a sharp sword or some sort of spear or maybe even an arrow and not be wounded uh, to the point of death in these areas. And so Paul says for the Christian, our breastplate, that which protects us in this area, is the breastplate of righteousness. Now, righteousness is a Bible word that is actually probably pretty commonly understood in what it really is, but we might not use the word righteousness. Righteousness just means uprightness or right living that results in acceptance. In the uh, context in which we're talking about today, we're talking about acceptance with God. And so when we have righteousness, it means that we have a kind of living, a kind of life, upright living with integrity that allows us to have acceptance with God. Now this is incredibly important because it's our biggest problem. We're most vulnerable in this righteousness because it's our biggest challenge. In fact, in sin is where we lose our righteousness. We see this in the story of Adam and Eve. The moment they sinned, it said before there was sin in the world, they were naked and unashamed. They had nothing to hide. And when sin enters the world, the moment it does, they cover themselves, they hide from God, and they hide from each other. They hide. And sin causes us to lose this concept of righteousness or the idea that we are who we are, able to be accepted. And we spend the rest of our lives in search of this. And so today, what I want us to do is, as we look into this piece of armor is to look at three really simple things. First of all, the armor is going to tell us about the attack, the way Satan attacks us. Secondly, we're going to see the way we defend that through the defense that Jesus offers us. And we're going to spill out with our finish and talking about the offense, the way that we really battle and go to war. So let's start with the attack. This metaphor of a breastplate of righteousness is a perfect picture for you to see 
just the way that Satan wants to attack you, the way that he wants to come after you. Paul is not just using this language to be poetic. He's not using this language just to sort of drum up some imagery. It is a perfect representation of exactly how Satan wants to and is probably right now currently attacking you. It shows us, first of all, Satan's goal. When Paul says that you need to put on a breastplate of righteousness, it tells you the goal that Satan has when he's coming after you. Righteousness. You see, the essence of righteousness, to be in right standing with God and with people so that they accept us and God accepts us, is a direct result of people's actions, what you do. Righteousness is judged not upon what you think, but how you live, your behavior. And so, for us to be righteous with God, we have to have right living. And now there's only two options for us when we think about having righteousness with God that accepts us. Righteousness with God that makes him look down and say, I'm pleased with you, who you are is perfect, and I accept you. There's only two options for us to get righteousness. And that's action you take, things you do, that God then looks down and says, okay, who you are and what you do is perfect. I completely accept you. There's no sin in your life. Or action God takes, what God does what is commonly known as salvation. And here's Satan's goal. His goal is for you to be completely focused on all of your action and the way in which you fall short. He wants you to be obsessed with, to focus on, to be centered on, and to not think about anything God does, but to completely think about you. And then, we, so that's his goal, is to distract us in righteousness, but also his goal, we see his target. The breastplate shows us the target that Satan goes after. Now, in ancient Jew, Jewish writing and thinking, the heart of a person and the stomach of the person were very important representations. A person's heart was known in Jewish writing as their mind, meaning the center of their life, the way that they thought about things, the way that they interpreted things, the way that they processed things. That was the person's heart. We see in the Bible oftentimes being referred to the heart as the place where mankind thinks. And then the stomach for the Jewish person was referenced to the center of a person's emotions, their feelings. And so for the Jewish person, when Paul says a breastplate of righteousness, what he's talking about is protection of both your mind and your emotions. How you think and how you feel. You see, Satan in his attack starts with your mind. He wants you to think wrong about righteousness. He wants you to think wrong about acceptance. He wants you to think wrong about your assurance. He wants you to think that all of this is dependent upon you and it's based upon you. And he does it two ways. And he doesn't care which way you go, but he just wants to distract you. And let me show you both of these ways and see if you can do some self-diagnosis on the way that Satan finds some success in your life. One way is this. He puffs you up. He builds you up. So if we're thinking constantly that I'm saved and I'm righteous and I'm accepted and God loves me and, and is cherishing me because of all that I do, one of the ways that he distracts you is by puffing you up. And here's how it looks like. We in our mind think things like this. Look how righteous I am. Man, I'm doing great. Or maybe we think things like this. Look at what that person is doing. Man, I would never do something like that. What they're doing, that's, oh, they're horrible. I would never, ever be caught doing it. Not me. Or maybe you think something like this. 
man, what they're doing, I could do so much better than them. And one of the ways you can really diagnose this is when you start to think things like this. Man, God should be blessing me more than he's blessing them. Look at how I live. You see how Satan begins to puff us up and to inflate us. And when we think this way, we're seeing our righteousness as what the reason God should accept us. We look like the older brother in Luke 15 who can't believe that his younger brother would ever be accepted because look at all the things that he's done. Now, the other way Satan works, so he doesn't care if you go that way or this way, not just puffing you up, but tearing you down. And so here's how this looks. Maybe you think things like, I'll never be good enough. Man, what I do is horrible, awful. God would never want me. I'll never make it. I'm probably lost. If I were really a Christian, I would never think, do, or act this way. Man, I'm, I'm terrible. This is horrible. I'm awful. Now, whether he's puffing you up or tearing you down, those are two sides of the same coin. And what is that coin? Self. It's self. And so once Satan has your mind, he now can control your emotions. And here was Satan, when he starts with your mind, then he moves to your emotions. And here's where you really can begin to test yourself. When you're a person who's puffed up, here's sort of the things that you experience in your emotions. You experience arrogance or pride. You become pretty judgmental towards people. You become very competitive with other people, brothers and sisters in Christ. That you think you should be the one doing all the things and no one else is, knows what they're doing. You become annoyed quickly. And any time any whisper of any criticism comes your way about you, you become incredibly defensive. That's when you're puffing yourself up. And when you're being torn down, when you're in that, here's how that sort of plays out in your emotions. You're always anxious, always nervous, always unsure, a lot of insecurity. You become depressed and oftentimes even become indifferent because, man, obviously I can't do it, so I might as well give up. You see, both of these things, Satan doesn't care if you go arrogance or you go despair. He doesn't care. He just wants to distract you in this war so that you start taping on paper on your chest and making a breastplate of righteousness that cannot fight against him. And so we need a better defense. We need a better defense. You need a breastplate of righteousness that is impenetrable, that cannot be defeated, that is more powerful than anything you could ever conjure up. A kind of righteousness that protects your mind from both pride and despair. A kind of righteousness that protects your emotions from going all sideways. You see, in reality, the righteousness needed to stand accepted before God is nothing that we have ever, ever, ever been able to create. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 24, who can stand in the presence of God? Who can ascend to his holy hill? It's only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's the only person that can climb the hill and stand in front of God without any fear, any reservation, or any shame because I have perfectly clean hands and a perfectly pure and clean heart. And we've yet to find somebody able really to create that kind of righteousness to make us accepted before God. But thanks be to God for his incredible grace. He's given us something, a kind of gift that you need to know about. You see, it starts with his son, Jesus Christ, who from the foundation of the world knew that he would come for sinners to save sinners. He knew this. 
of his own volition, of his own choice, of his own will, he said, I will do what these people are unable to do. I'll save them. And Jesus came and he lived a perfectly righteous life. And yet he died the death deserved only by a sinner. That's the narrative of his life. He was holy, righteous, pure, obedient. There was no fault found in him. In fact, he stood to his opposers and said, if you find sin in me, let me know. Tell me, where is the sin? There is no sin in this man. He lived a perfectly righteous life. So if there were a man ever to exist who could walk up the holy hill of God and stand there and say, you owe me acceptance, it's Jesus Christ. That's righteousness. And yet at the cross, he took a death only deserved to be taken by a sinner. And why would he do that? You see, something powerful happens at the cross. Probably in your, most of you are familiar with the concept of forgiveness in Jesus. That at the cross, there was Jesus, and he took from you the punishment you deserve, the guilt that was yours. He took that from you. And he grabbed that. He became the, what's called the propitiation, the appropriate sacrifice that absorbed God's wrath that was deserved by sinners. That's what he did. But at the same time, something else amazing happens that you've got to know. You see, his perfect life, his perfect obedience, his righteousness was not just, he didn't just take sin from us or take the guilt from us. He gave to us as Christians his perfect righteousness. His acceptance. Paul would say it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He explains it in more detail in Romans chapter 3 that the righteousness of God is a gift to us by faith. In chapter 4 he explains it farther. That we can actually have a standing in front of God. That he looks down upon us as a perfect law keeper. That he looks at you and says, my perfect son, my perfect daughter. And you have access to his presence and his blessing as a perfect child, as a gift of Jesus Christ. That's why over 160 times Paul would say over and over about a Christian, you are in Jesus Christ. You are covered by Jesus Christ. When you are baptized, you die to your old self that has righteousness that is broken, or as Isaiah said, like filthy rags. And when you come up out of the waters, that old person died, that new person now lives covered in Jesus Christ. Now, you remember last week we said the belt of truth is what holds us all together? You'll never be able to wear this breastplate if you don't tell yourself that truth. That the righteousness of Jesus Christ, when you become a Christian, is given to you as a gift. And when you're attacked, you have an iron-clad breastplate to protect you. Let's say you're being puffed up, and after a while in church and religion, you start to feel like, I'm kind of nailing this, man. I'm awesome. Man, these people are a mess. I would never live like that. I'm so glad. God's lucky he got me. Then you put that breastplate back on it and reminds you that he had to die for my sins so I could have this breastplate. It humbles me. And let's say you're being torn down and you're ready to give up. You're convinced that there's no way in the world you'll ever make it to heaven because of who you are, what you've done, what you think, and how you live. There's no way. You grab that breastplate of righteousness and you remember that it was his righteousness when he died on the cross for me. And when I put his on, I have assurance that I'm accepted 
with an incredible kind of certainty. See, Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3. He says in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, I mean righteousness of my own, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's saying, no one measures up to me in righteousness of the law. Verse 5, he explains it. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, he says, I'm blameless. If there was any man who had a resume to stand in front of God, Paul's saying, it's me, I've got it. But in verse 7, he says, but whatever I had that I counted as gain, I now count as loss. I have to count those things as loss. See, Paul was a man that was puffed up. He said, all those things I brag about, I have to count as a loss so that I can have Christ. Now listen to verse 8. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, his breastplate. And so you as a Christian have to start counting these things that are hurting you as lost. Maybe you're puffed up. You've got to um, count those things that puff you up as lost. And maybe you're in despair. Maybe you're always torn down. Paul's saying to you as well, you've got to start counting those things as lost. Get rid of those things. He says that they're like cow manure in verse 9 or verse 8 when he says, that I count them as, uh, that they have no worth, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now listen to what he says in verse 9. And I want to be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. You see, this kind of righteousness is a foolproof defense to the attacks of Satan on your mind and your heart that you'll never ever be accepted in front of God or that you will be because you're so great. Jesus is offering you protection. But it's not just a defense mechanism. There's also offense in this. You see, the beauty of accepting this righteousness as our breastplate is that it frees us to strive for righteous living, actual practical righteous living. Because the goal is not just to accept gift of Jesus and then go into indulgence or sin and give up. That's not the goal. In fact, when you really accept the fullness of his righteousness, what he sacrificed for you, it actually liberates you to pursue living righteously. Let me explain. Um, I love basketball. I love to play it. Um, I had probably the most average basketball career you could ever have in your life, ever. I, play, I played at an average size school in an average size, normal average town. I had an average team. We won just a little bit over half of our games, which is average. I played an average amount of minutes. I scored an average amount of points. The only thing above average was the goatee I learned to grow as a senior in high school, but other than that, everything else was average. And I graduated high school, and I, have, you know, I love basketball. I was just an average player. And I go off to college, and I come back on winter break, and the coach 
of the team called and he said, would you mind coming up with a few other guys and scrimmaging our varsity team to try to help them? I said, sure, I'll come play. And I show up and I guess what happens? I haven't played basketball all fall. And I'm playing better than I've ever played. I mean, I'm turning the ball over less, I'm scoring more points, I'm making shots, and my coach is just like, what is this? He was frustrated, right? He's like, hey, wait a minute, where is this guy? Why didn't he play this way last year, you know? And I said, well, he asked me what was going on. He wanted to understand. He's a good coach. He was inquiring. And, he, and I said, all I can really think about is I just don't feel like a lot of pressure. I just don't really feel like I can lose anything now, so I'm kind of free to just go for it. And he goes, hmm, I guess it sounds like you're kind of free to try your best, huh? I said, I am. Now, what we're talking about with righteousness is way more important than basketball. It really has to do with relationships with each other and most importantly, relationship with God. Now, what I want you to do as we finish is I want you to start thinking about some of the most important relationships in your life. The most important one. The ones, which ones make me the most mad? Those are the ones that are always most important in your life. I'm serious. You only get mad about things you care about. Remember that when you're fighting with your spouse? You only get mad about things you care about. I want you to imagine those important relationships. Maybe it is a spouse or a significant other, and what we want from them ultimately is to feel accepted. That's what we want. That's righteousness. We want to feel like they accept us and love us. And so we put pressure on ourselves to have, maybe have the right job or to give the right gift or have the perfect first date or to do the right chore so that they accept us. We put pressure on ourselves. Or maybe you're thinking about friends. And you want friends to accept you, and so you feel pressure to have the right personality or have the right clothes or drive the right car, maybe have the right house. Maybe they're thinking about your parents, and you want your parents to accept you, and so you have this pressure that you think about having the right behavior, getting the right grades, or having the right boyfriend, girlfriend, or accomplishing the right accolade. Maybe parents, you're thinking about your kids as being most important to you. And we want our kids even to accept us. And so we feel pressure to have the right answers for them. Or we feel pressure to have the right availability to do all the activities that they've ever wanted in their life, right? Or maybe we feel pressure to have the magic potion to make all their problems always go away. Maybe you want your church to accept you. And so you feel pressure to have a correct buttoned up life, a perfect life. So that when your church sees you, they'll accept you. Or have the right comment in the Bible class or after services so that everyone thinks your life's together and now they'll accept me. Now what I want you to do is, whatever your mixture of people is, imagine them around you for a moment. All these people, your church, your spouse, your kids, your friends, imagine them around you and they look at you and all of them are saying over and over and over saying this. We accept you. We love you unconditionally. We are here for you. Man, we're proud of you. And we will never, ever leave you. Imagine all these important people in your life, parents, kids, spouse, friends, significant other, all around you saying, listen, listen to me. Love you, proud of you, appreciate you, never leave you, here for you, constantly saying that to you. How are you going to walk out your house on Monday morning? I feel like you can take the world on, right? Are you worried about messing up? Are you worried about, you know making a mistake? If they've said over and over, listen, just give your best because we love you. We're proud of you. We're here for you. Boy, it just infuses in you a kind of confidence to go for life, doesn't it? Let me tell you something. 
Those relationships are vital and important, and God wants you to have them. But all of those relationships are just tiny representations of the one relationship that matters most in your life. And they represent an underlying desire that every human in this room has. A desire for your divine creator to accept you. And your spouse's acceptance, your friend's acceptance, your kid's acceptance, your church's acceptance is nice, but it will never substitute for your Father in heaven saying, I accept you. I love you. I'm here for you. I'm proud of you. And I will never, ever leave you because you're Jesus Christ. That's how righteousness frees you to pursue living a righteous life. You see, all those statements I said, you can actually find them in Scripture. When Jesus was baptized, what did his father say to him? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. In Hebrews 13, he promised, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You see, when you know that you have acceptance as a gift from Jesus Christ, and you know the cost that Jesus had to pay to give you that gift, it will birth in you a gratitude, a love, and the liberation you're really looking for to live a righteous life. Listen to how Paul said in chapter 3, verse 12 of uh, Philippians, after he finished that righteous statement, he said this in verse 12, not that I have already attained righteousness, or am already perfect, I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Do you see that? Paul says, I press with every ounce of energy I have to make perfection and righteousness my own already because in past tense, Jesus has made me his. And he says, therefore, forgetting those things that are behind. How many of you are doing that right now? Forgetting what's behind and pressing forward to what's ahead. I lay hold of the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You've got to get a forward vision of a goal of being called by God to heaven and knowing you can have that by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you're going to pursue righteousness the rest of your life. But if you don't get that, you won't. You'll live with pride or fear. Have I done enough? Oh man, I've done enough. And you'll miss the Father's banquet. Remember Luke 15? The older son, proud of himself, wouldn't accept the gift. And there's dancing and eating and drinking and a celebration going on in the father's house. And the older son is standing out in the field, locked in the hell of bitterness. Where are you going to fall? What are you going to choose? How are you going to live? Let's stand and sing.